truth is something I'm more interested in because it requires the careful time and energy for us societally and collectively to pick apart those pieces that we don't know about our histories, that we may not know about what brought us here today, so that we can better understand our location, so that we can move forward in a way that I believe can move beyond the constructs, values, and practices of colonialism. And the moment that we can do that is the moment that I think we can think about transformation and transforming together. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. I recently sat down with Dr. Erin Gilpin for a fascinating and winding conversation about the shaping of her life's work, which is hard to sum up with one or a few words. Erin, who is of mixed Cree, Métis, and Filipino Celtic ancestry, is a community wellness researcher, activist, artist, birth doula, educator, filmmaker, founder of Indigenous Women Climb, and postdoctoral researcher. Her current work focuses on indigenous wellness pedagogy, climate action, land-based leadership, embodied governance, insurgent healing, and land-water-based wellness. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, from her passion of rock climbing and traditional beadwork, to doula birth work and her desire to use filmmaking to bring about indigenous transformation. Erin is the newest instructor to join Pacific Rim College Online, where she teaches a course entitled Indigenous Land Protocol and Medicinal Harvesting. We explore the significance of this course to her and the importance of sharing this information to the world at this critical time. Listen all the way through to the end of this episode or check the show notes for links to this course. There is so much more that we discuss as there seems to be no end to what Erin has to offer. Tune in and learn how her knowledge of place, past, and emergence can inspire you. Aaron, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for it's so great. Me. Yeah, it's so great to do an interview in person because so many of my interviews lately have been over Zoom. So right. it's nice to actually sit down face-to-face with someone. I know we're going to get to this, which is discussing an online course that you've created with Pacific Rim College Online. It's called Indigenous Land Protocol and Medicinal Harvesting. But I don't typically take direct routes, so I'm wondering if it's all right with you if we take a bit of a journey to get there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I thought maybe we could start talking about something we're both passionate about, which is rock climbing, because I know that's something that you are very much into and have created some initiatives around that. Do you mind talking a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I will start by saying I love rock climbing. So (laughs) great starting point. Um, Yeah, I have a group that I organized. uh, I started organizing a few years ago called Indigenous Women Climb. And that really came out of wanting to create more spaces for um, Indigenous youth and Indigenous folks uh, to access and to experience the sport, but also the just overall experience of rock climbing. Um, and additionally, we also try to 
create a space for educational opportunities for non-Indigenous folks within the rock climbing communities to start contemplating and thinking about relationship to land and relationship to one another um, that are reflective of Indigenous place-based knowledge systems and governance and protocols. So things like permissions, locating where we're climbing, whose territories may we be climbing on, and, you know, what does permissions look like? Is that something that could, um, you know, guide my rock climbing in a different way. And I started climbing about um, seven years ago, I guess now. And very quickly as I, you know, entered into climbing gyms and things like that, definitely recognized a lack of diversity. Um, But also as I started to experience climbing outside, you know, uh, which is, where where my heart is outdoor outdoor rock climbing um i definitely saw a tone or a culture that was actually kind of reflective of colonialism in the way that people would talk about the land so i you know people would say things like uh virgin rock or you know conquering roots or or things like that and even the the cosmology around climbing opening and putting names um was quite reflective of, I think, an erasure of Indigenous relationship to place and knowledge systems. And so I was really interested in, one, meeting other Indigenous climbers where we could talk about what does it mean to be climbing out on the land and how do our cultural protocols and teachings influence those practices, but also to create spaces for for the larger outdoor, you know, community to start thinking about these things because ultimately I think the land and relationship to land is really a like the portal or the wormhole for us to start engaging with transformative relationships with one another. And so you can call that, you know, you know, anti-oppressive or anti-racist practice and, you know, relational pedagogy you can call it all these different things but I really see uh, the the greatest teacher in that being the land so if we could do that consciously in something even at like rock climbing then I think it it's a really exciting uh, yeah it's a really exciting experience what is the name of the initiative and the focus of the initiative that you started um so the name is indigenous woman climb and we so when I, yeah, when I, I think I started it in 2017 on my couch in my living room, talking to a friend, I had actually was, I was on Instagram and I was actually like Googling in like native or indigenous climbers because everywhere I went, I, there was, I just really didn't meet anyone. And I really wanted to, you know, talk and joke and, you know, be out climbing in a way that wasn't really reflected around me. And so I actually found this amazing Anishinaabe uh, woman, uh, Ashley Thompson. She's uh, Anishinaabe from Red Lake First Nation. And I and I found her on Instagram and I sent her a message. I was like, yo, you're native and you're a climber. And we started talking and we actually developed an amazing friendship and we have visited one another. And from that relationship, we definitely, I think, reaffirm for one another the the gap or, you know, the the need for more Indigenous representation and education and content within, uh, I think, the consciousness or the, you know, the community of rock climbing and how people relate to the outdoors. And so she does a thousand things. And, you know, I was like, well, let, let, I'll just start a virtual community through Instagram or whatever. And 
um, that was kind of the starting point. And that really became a platform for more Indigenous climbers to find one another, uh, specifically uh, those who identify as women, but intersectional. So also those who are um who maybe identify as two-spirit or non-binary. So that's why we spell woman with an X to recognize that the English language is kind of limiting and also how we envision and enact our identities and gender relations and things like that. So, um, yeah, and since we had that platform, it's really been an opportunity for folks within industry or um, film festivals like the Banff International Film Festival or Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival and other kind of like organizing bodies around outdoors uh, to invite us and to have these conversations in terms of how do we think about, you know, our ourselves in relationship to place and it's really exciting because it really provides the opportunity I think to also extend a lot of the scholarship that I've been learning about and engaging in in terms of indigenous research methodologies and and educational practices to a space like rock climbing. Now I've heard that you and your husband have a an independent film company. So is there a forthcoming film related to this? Oh work? there is a series. A series all right. <laughs> Yeah, so we have just um so again my my husband is a filmmaker, photographer, storyteller and he's a Cafuso, so he's Afro-indigenous from Brazil and he's really taught me actually to really see the world through stories as opposed to seeing it through the papers that we publish or not that I actually saw the world in that way anyways, but he really opened my eyes to seeing how film and mixed media storytelling is a really powerful way to translate, transcribe and reproduce indigenous knowledge and, and imaginations and uh, relational teachings and all these different things. And so and um, I will preface by saying I am a very imaginative person. I do consider myself a sci-fi specialist and am very happy existing in that world. So I love films. I love storytelling. And he kind of he taught me how to see it as a tool for self-determination and for carrying forward uh, place-based knowledge and um, critical intersectionality and all these different things that we can really translate through through film. And so he helped me translate my uh, PhD dissertation into a short you know, visual representation, a short film representation. And I really learned about how film can be used as a tool or you know to enhance teaching and enhance educational opportunities and so that's where really we started to think about how can we do that together with the communities that we work with for and um, that's kind of the how our little production company got started and we're hoping to we have some things in the works and we're hoping to uh, yeah in terms of rock climbing really share and produce stories around indigenous women and indigenous folks in the outdoors engaging with things like rock climbing and showing indigenous people crushing but also doing it in a way that's reflective of our own cultural teachings and worldviews and and relations which is quite different than what we see in rock climbing films at this point when did rock climbing come into your life rock climbing came into my life uh, when my husband came into my life. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess I should say rock climbing came into my life the moment that my sister-in-law came into my life because he create, he produced a film featuring his sister, who is a woman of color based in Brazil, 
And it's a film about this woman doing this thing, which I never had seen before. I, I never even knew rock climbing was a thing. Um, and I saw this film of her talking about fear, talking about, you know, self-worth, talking about transformation, all these things. So talking about, I think, more of the emotional and even spiritual experience of climbing um, and then just seeing her be really strong and doing these like really crazy things, which was climbing. And seeing this woman do these things really kind of like grabbed onto my to my insides. And I was like, oh, I don't know what that is, but I really want to try it. So it was through seeing this film. And that would have been in uh, maybe like 2012, 2013. And then I just kind of like bit by bit through our relationship and through him introducing me to climbing through his culture and his worldview, you know, climbing for him was deeply connecting to his homelands and it was being able to be out on the land and spend days and weeks just just being there and so his entry point into climbing was deeply embedded in his identity and so I feel lucky in that way that I was introduced to it not just as an activity or a sport but something that was a an expression of someone's uh, deep connection to place and so um yeah, so I would say through through the film and through also, you know, the way that he introduced me to it, that kind of set the tone for how I started to learn uh, how to climb afterwards mm-hmm. uh, until now. <laughs> so let's go back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up. I mean, your home really reminds me of a piece of my childhood, actually. Oh, so really? yeah, it really did the goats, especially. <laughs> um, I grew up outside of London, Ontario, in a place called Kamoka, and um, but I but I'm referencing to your home because my mom's dad had a little hobby farm, and so we spent a lot of time there. And uh, that he had goat, he had. A, I don't know, a lot of random things. And and uh, my sister and I would literally just disappear for, you know, as long as we were there. And that was kind of like, when I think of my childhood, I think of being there with my sister and just us being outside forever, <laughs> like mm-hmm. creating the worlds that we created. And that extended, it really extends into to who we are and, and how we interact as well today. And what is your ethnic background? Because I know you have quite diversity in that. Yeah, I am mixed mixed blood magic. and um, so, <laughs> <I like> that. <laughs> yeah. That's enough. Yeah. We can move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, go ahead. I get that question, you know, like, what's your background? And I'm like, mi- just magic, you know. <laughs> like, um, I've seen a couple of memes like that. I'm like, oh, I like that. Um, so I am a mix of Soto Cream AT, uh, Filipino, and also Irish and Scottish. So um but which is also Celtic. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a real mix of people. Now how's that play out as far as your, your direct lineage, your parents, who is, who falls where? Yeah. So I am Soto Creamy Tea and Filipino through my father. And then I'm Irish and Scottish through my mother. Okay. So the, okay. Yeah. Okay. I got it. And I'm sure come that, over and meet my family. Then I, it'll. I'm sense. sure that that mixed magic has certainly informed a lot of the work that you now do and a lot of your passions yeah. in life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, we're going to come to academia because I know that's a large part of of your impact. Before we go there, what is sweetgrass and mangoes? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so sweetgrass and mangoes is 
um, well, it's the name of a website that I created and it's just a place for me to share, you know, a little bit about my birth doula work and um, people to get in touch and also a place where I uh, have some of my beading. And so it's just like my little online uh, platform, I guess. But Sweetgrass really is a representation of my genealogy and lineage to um, to the Soto Cree Métis uh parts of who I am as as an Hialmachifisque to the northern territories of of Manitoba and to um Clearwater and just to the places that really ground who I am within within these northern territories and um mangoes is what you know is reflective of my Filipino ancestry to the to the islands and to mangoes and things like that and I think if more than anything it's just an indicator of who I am as a mixed person recognizing that I'm from different lands but um these things like you said really define who I am in the work that I do and also help me understand my responsibilities to different communities as well I recently read Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah, it's on my shelf. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> uh, it, you have it. You have know, to read it. I it's know. amazing. And I didn't realize the. I didn't know anything about sweetgrass prior to that, and I certainly didn't realize the significance of it in in First Nations communities. So, amazing book. I I hope you get into it and really wait. enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now's a good time to pick up a book and read. I'm still kind of, I'm rereading my favorite sci-fi trilogy right now. <laughs> Which one's that? It's called the Broken Earth series. Okay. And it's um, a sci-fi fantasy Afro-futuristic post-apocalyptic trilogy <laughs> that's just mind-blowing. And I would recommend everyone to read it at this point of time. And it's by N.K. Jemison. Or J.K. Nemesin. I I can't. I always mix those up. But really amazing, amazing right. book. She just won. Um, like she won a like sci-fi writer award of award of the year last really? year or two years ago or something. Yeah, she's amazing. I will look forward and try to put it in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> so what do you? What is the work you do through Sweetgrass and Mangoes? Yeah. So the work that I do specifically through Sweetgrass and Mangoes is just, you know, beadwork. So I um, bead. What, tell me about beadwork. Oh, I, okay. I know nothing about beadwork. Oh, right. I guess so. Eh? You know, <laughs> who really? <laughs> you kind of assume that beadwork, yeah, people know what that is. Um, so beading is something that I think is a cultural indicator. It's something that a lot of uh, folks do through as self-expression, but it's always, it's also traditional. So beadwork is uh, represented and uh, embodied in a lot of our regalia, and they're also indicators of place. So our beadwork um, speaks to to place. You can kind of locate where people are from based to their beadwork. You can tell where beadwork is, you know, located in in the Northwest Territories, or you know, Métis beadwork is very um, notable. Um, so I started to learn. I started to learn uh, how to bead probably around the same time actually that I started my master's of indigenous governance. I never had learned, I, you know, I had beadwork. I had, you know, some things that my grandmother had given me, but I never learned how to bead. And so beading, I, it's actually around the same time I learned how to climb, um, was a big part of me just trying to contemplate, you know, the ideas around resurgence. What does resurgence mean? And what what's the need for resurgence? And what what are the 
the, what's the need to reconnect and feel deeply embedded in our cultural teachings and in our place-based knowledge. And so beading was like the activity to, to do those things. And I feel really grateful for having amazing friends who are outstanding beaders. Um, I could definitely link you to some of their, the work that they do. Shout out to Please Australia yeah. <laughs> and Caroline and, um, Angela but um so yeah it was really a place where a lot of us would actually just come together and uh just bead together it became a, a really beautiful place for us to build relationship and now I bead earrings and and do things like that and I sell them and um but I do custom orders so I have a practice where I really like to have an idea of what that person is looking for in their life and I try to kind of pray into the earrings and into the regalia that I make uh, so that it can really accompany them in the in a way in their journey where it feels like you know protection or there's meaning to it as well so so that's what I do and I also share a little bit about my work as a birth doula on on and through sweetgrass and mangoes as well okay we'll get to birth doula I want to stick with this beating for a minute (laughs) so forgive my ignorance I'm not familiar with it all but I did go to your website. Now I recall seeing some of your earrings. So these are very bright and colorful beads. Is that typically and quite tiny? Yes, Yes. they are tiny. Um, I definitely, I'll link back to climbing because climbing helped me become a better beater because now I can just sew through my fingers and I don't even feel it anymore because my hands (laughs) are so tough. (laughs) Yeah, I remember learning how to bead. It was like, it's such a distinct memory because it was around the time in my life where... Um, I was learning more about, you know, my articulating and and feeling through and and learning about my indigeneity in more of a conscious and political way as well. It's always been a part of who we are and how we were raised, but it wasn't something that I could necessarily articulate in terms of um, a political practice or things like that. And so my education really gave me the tools to even talk about things like decolonization or indigenization. These were terms that were quite new to me. And so I was doing a lot of contemplation and a lot of reflection about them and beading was really that place where I was able to do that. And um, I remember learning how to bead and I was, you know, practicing and doing some things on my own. And, and I was like, this is, you know, as I was beading, like you're directly connected to your ancestors right now, you know, like you're, you know, this is a, significant thing and then I would like sew through my finger or like drop all my stuff and beads would fall everywhere and I would like throw it in the air and be like ah! like it's just like really frustrated but I think it's such a great memory because learning is like that learning is messy learning is you know requires humility and vulnerability and humor and so I really feel like that's represented in how I learned how to bead and how I'm continue to learn how to bead as well. And is this the an- the Cree Métis ancestry? That yeah. That's connect- okay. Yeah. And is this something that is traditional to First Nations all across our land, different beading, yeah. or is it mostly geographically oriented? Yeah. So, I mean, I think generally a lot of uh, nations and indigenous folks across Canada or across Turtle Island you know uh relate to or practice beating now it's it's something that a lot of people do um however i i'm still learning i i do find that out here on the on the coasts as well people i am seeing blankets i'm seeing um i mean i can't actually speak to that i i can't speak to how co- you know coastal relations to beating but from my own uh 
family lineage and um, my own culture, it's a huge part of where we're from. And so just to locate, that's about eight hours north of Manitoba. And um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And what purpose within the culture does it serve? I know yeah. you mentioned that you can identify different groups, but what, what is the, the broader purpose? Yeah. So, I mean, from what I have learned, um, and I had, spe- I have specifically learned a lot about, you know, colors and, um, through, uh, Sherry Puyak, who's from Sweetgrass First Nation. And she taught me and continues to teach me that, like, that bright colors are very important for us. And, um, that, really has to do with ceremonial significance, but also the type of energy that we attract to us as well. So uh, bright colors play a role in ceremony. You'll see a lot of regalia wearing, you know, very bright colors and beading is an extension of that. So it really is an opportunity and extension to, um, yeah, to extend our regalia into our everyday lives as well. And so I personally believe that um, the beadwork that I do and that I wear are in some ways uh, protection pieces. And, you know, um, like I mentioned, some beadwork, you know, are indicators of kinship, of family. And I have beadwork that's been passed down in my family and um, that I'm trying to now learn how to do to also reproduce for the next generations to come as well to keep that genealogy connected. And so I think it's also a deeply personal um, practice. And so it may just mean different things for different people as well. Mm-hmm. Do you mind a few more questions? on this? I, yeah, absolutely. The colors, you said bright colors. Yeah. Do different cultures have different colors that they use? Well, or that's a good it... question. I don't know. Okay. Do you have a palette that you're restricted to in, in what you do or is no. it whatever? Oh, no. Yeah. Um, okay. I will... I'm thinking like sporting teams. <laughs> they all have oh, their own okay. colors, right? I just Yeah, so the you... <laughs> Cree Nation just uses green and you know... No. <laughs> no and I wouldn't even say indicators like I could look at someone's beadwork and be like oh I know where you're from um I think more so like I saw this really funny meme and it was somebody wearing these beautiful earrings um you know traditional indigenous earrings and it said you know who who made your earrings native proverb because generally beaters know each other it's a play it's like you know we support one another um it's a way, I don't know, it's it's hard to talk about in this way, actually. I never mm-hmm. really thought about it in these ways. <laughs> it's just something that we do in community, I guess. <laughs> and what are the beads made of? Oh, so um, I, you can get glass beads. I, You know what? I honestly feel like I should call my actual beater <laughs> friends and be like, yo, can you come in on this conversation, please? Let's have a call in. Sorry, putting you a bit on the spot. <laughs> no, what, what... I, ha- I use check beads and seed beads. Check? Um, yeah, Czech, like Czech Republic. That's just oh, how it's... Yeah, and okay. so you can get beads that are made out of glass. Um, historically, were they all handmade? So historically, been at some point. from what I understand, beads were first introduced to specifically like our territories through trade with the Chinese. Hmm. Don't quote me on that. Uh, well, I, have I to. should it's, have it's prepared for beadwork <laughs> specifically. I'm used to talking about beadwork, you know, with... <laughs> with like community or something is, but I'm not I'm not really sure I'll have to do some research and then, then I'll come back and we'll do a whole separate one on beadwork okay. <laughs> all right I'll leave it at that okay. <laughs> let's talk about doulas oh okay I know you're a birth doula yep 
Uh, as you know, at Pacific Rim College, we also have a doula program. How did you get into being a doula and what does it mean to you? Oh, this is just the best question in the world. Actually define it as well, because some of our listeners might not know. Yeah, that's a great question. So doula, the word doula from my learning until this point actually has Greek origin and it can be translated to servant or helper. And... um. That's a. I just want to say that for, for this stuff that you couldn't answer on the spot with beadwork, you just made up for it yeah. with that. I mean, that was beautiful. <laughs> well, because I had to look it up. I was like, what the heck is a doula? Like, it's a cool word, but like, what? So, um, but let, I'll say not everyone who works as a doula actually identifies as a doula. Some people may call themselves a birth helper, um, a birth auntie, uh, a birth keeper. There's different words that I'm seeing people use in community. And so, I had no idea what a doula was, but I had always known that I want to be around birth. And that wasn't something I knew that was, you know, an actual thing that you could learn how to do. All that I knew was that one day when my sister has a baby, I want to know how to be there with her and for her in a safe, effective and um, like loving way. And um so she, my sister actually had a friend message me and she said, Hey, I'm coming into town. Can I crash at your place? I'm doing this training. And she told me about this training. I was like, Oh, what is that? And she said, well, it's for people to learn how to be like a birth helper. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I looked into it and, um, I was able to get into the training, um, which was really helpful because there was actually uh, a grant for Indigenous learners. And so I was able to access that grant and then uh, be kind of a the, the doula of the training. So I was able to help out, set up and, you know, like kind of have a trade option and then a little bit of a discount to be able to access the training. So that was really meaningful. And it wasn't until that training that I learned, A, what is a doula? And B, that this is really what I'd want to do in my life. And um, so the training really prepares, like, well, yeah, so a doula is essentially someone who offers uh, emotional, uh, maybe spiritual physical and in in my case hopefully cultural support at the time of uh birth and so there and I work as a birth doula some people work as full spectrum so that'll also include you know prenatal and postpartum uh, support as well and um yeah and so I was really ecstatic to learn about the actual um, practices on of, of like how even pregnancy and labor and all these different things work because I really didn't have an understanding beyond you know some of my favorite books where I would read about like labor and I, it was just like such a powerful moment that I really wanted to be a part of and I in my life uh, really identify and feel comfortable as a helper I don't necessarily and don't want to be um you know a leader or you know in any way like in on you know in the front I really feel comfortable behind the scenes and and helping and so that's what gives me life that's what gives me light and joy and um this was just a way to learn how to be a loving helper at such a like fundamental time in both birthing parents but also in family life as well and the more that I learned about um, what it meant to be a doula, the more that I also recognized the need to 
create spaces for our own communities to be able to learn how to support ourselves because um, there are significant barriers that Indigenous families face in receiving anti-racist and anti-oppressive and culturally safe, uh, culturally safe, uh, like healthcare. And so I, as I began to learn more, you know, through my own research and through um, my own academic studies, I began to be become more passionate about being able to uh, be a part of those educational opportunities. And so that really extent, leans into my work with the Nesting Doula Collective, which is a BIPOC doula collective for BIPOC families um, here in Victoria. And so we do our, we work towards creating our own training for, for doulas or for birth helpers. And also we try to offer workshop and learning opportunities for practicing doulas and birth helpers to think about how can I infuse my practice with, you know, anti-racist, anti-oppressive and, and safer um, care pedagogies and care practices. So, I mean, that's kind of like the behind the scenes curriculum development and educational work that we're trying to work towards. But in terms of working with families, I it's a complete honor and um, like real blessing to be able to be a part of that transformative transformational moment of family life and it's something that I like can get I get really emotional about just thinking about those moments and like the rites of passage passage that families experience and something that I really am working towards with a lot of other Indigenous doulas to reclaim for our families as well so really allowing for space for ceremonial protocols and teachings and um experiences to be a part of birth as well and that's kind of a larger you know context in terms of looking at the ways in which Canadian healthcare has um, excluded and or enacted violence upon Indigenous bodies and so there's a lot of healing that I think happens every time a, a new baby is born and the way that the baby is born if if it can be done in dignity and in love and in um, you know cultural teachings and language I think that's really revolutionary it's an incredibly intense profession it takes so much dedication like you really are at the women call of your families Mm -hmm. during an unknown amount of time because you you need to be there you've signed up for that are you taking clients are you seeing clients on a regular basis yeah yeah yeah. i i am um and you know what? I kind of just let people know wherever I am that I'm just able to be on call. So my partner, as I mentioned, is from Brazil. So when we go to Brazil, I let community know that I'm here. And if people just need extra support um, at that time to, you know, just to call me and, and I'll be there. But perf- like I guess more formally, I am I do take clients and um I've kind of had to slow down this year because I've been working full time at the University of Victoria, but my contract ends next week. So hopefully I'll be be able to open the way and and support more families because that's really where my heart is. Mm. That's really the work that I hope to be doing. What sort of experiences, positive or negative, have you had? Because it can be a very overwhelming. Yeah, it is a very overwhelming time. Um. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had to, well, I'll start with, you know, my very experience with getting my training. There were, you know, you think that, where do I even begin? 
in my training, there were there was some research that was shared that essentially said that indigenous women experience pain at like lower levels than like white women. So we don't necessarily need medical intervention like or epidurals or whatever because and it was based in some some study that was um extremely problematic and it was just kind of it kind of like brushed along and so they were pretty much saying that there are like different you can differentiate between how people experience pain and how different women experience pain and I heard this statistic or this quote that was shared and it wasn't by fault of the instructors but it was the material that they were using and this kind of leans like extends into how we think about research and who does research and what knowledge is valid and things like that but um and I had to, you know, put up my hand and say, oh, wait, okay, can we go back and address this statistic? And I was um, the only Indigenous woman in a room of all uh, white folks at that time. And it was just, I felt very emotional. Um, my grandfather um, was actually murdered in an Indian hospital. And so, like, this is something that is very directly, you know, embedded in our family and, and family's experience with accessing healthcare and things like that. And so, you know, I was pretty emotional. I said, can we go back and address, like, this isn't true and this is something that is really reproducing harm and, and how we think about each other and, and providing care and things like that. And and so since then, um, I ha- was able to, you know, have firsthand experiences and attend birth both at home, um, in community and in hospital settings and kind of see how unfortunately values embedded within, uh, you know, racism or, or colonial values of, of how we think about health and well-being. Um, I've, I've witnessed them play out in, in our healthcare setting and, um, there's like, a huge list of different ways in which I've seen that racism play out within uh, providing care for Indigenous families at that time of birth. And um, luckily, I feel that I I can be there in a way to support families when that when and if that does happen, because it is continuing um, and also provide space for us to create and to pressure for transform transformative change in terms of how we care for families in, in that time. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that I've witnessed and experienced and it's, and it's really crappy. Um, but then on the other hand, I mean, I've, was able to attend and support the first birth in Opitsit First Nation, uh, the first birth in their community in over 40 years um, because there's a lot of communities that need to leave uh, leave the context of their family, culture, home to go to a city to give birth. And sometimes they have to do that on their own and do that, you know, and wait until they go into labor and feel really isolated from family. And so I was really honored, um, I think two two years ago now, um, yeah, I was able to drive out and it, it worked out actually where I was attending a birth, a home birth, a beautiful home birth here in Victoria and I was, I got home by 3am and I got a message by my friend who was, you know, kind of going into labor at that time and she's like, you know, if, if you can come, come be here and I, you know, slept for a couple hours, got into my car and drove out to Tofino and parked and took a boat over and was able to be a part of the most 
incredible birth that I have the honor to witness. And it was done in their home, on their homelands, with family, with their grandfather's like music and it was really powerful something um i think really res- resonated outwards in terms of healing in that place because that baby was born in his homelands and waters and uh she's actually coming over today so i'll see her <laughs> she's driving in for something today so yeah so there were her grandfather's music is that what you said yeah so the so baby's grandfather's music so her yeah. husband's okay yeah father's music and that was being played yep during... the whole time yeah the whole time and they were able to by 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 her husband's father the whole time. Oh, so or... he wasn't there in okay. person, but they just were able to have the community. The community people yeah. were able to come in and out and support. Um, they were able to smudge. They were able to to enter into that time and space in a way that felt good for them. Uh, there's lots of limitations for giving birth in hospital settings, and um, a lot of cultural pieces that have to be left out so smudge or you know having medicines present or you know drumming or songs or whatever and so there's more freedom to be able to do that and this was her fourth baby and she felt you know confident and um ready to do that on her own and so her and her husband had their baby on their own and I was there to help and and love her through it (laughs) and is that traditional to have it be basically a community event with the drumming and singing and people coming and going, is that? I mean, it really will depend from nation to community to family. But I think what is foundational across Indigenous nations and communities are that our young ones and the babies are the most precious members of community. And it's and welcoming them um, innately will resound in a way that feels ceremonial and feels sacred and so even those words saying those words with you know and then stepping into a medicalized healthcare system they don't really match up and so in terms of thinking about how we bring our babies into this world we're excited to think about how we can you know braid we'll go back to braiding braid those together in a way that can really um I think create more space for families to determine how they want to birth their babies, whether that is ceremonially or what, or, or not, you know, but just allowing for the space to say, Hey, your culture is allowed to be here and your, you know, teachings are allowed to be here. And we're here to actually support that as opposed to you having to, you know, shove your body into a space that may not feel good for you or safe for you as well. I mean, that's what I, that's what I hope if I ever have babies, you know, I'd want to do it in a way that feels right for me. It sounds like such a beautiful birth experience. And so contrary to what the norm has become, Yeah. uh, sadly, because that seems to be more rooted in, in so many of, of the factors that we want to be cherishing at the time of of birth bringing in a new life into mm-hmm. that community with mm-hmm. so much sacredness around it it's well and it's you amazing. know like i only really started going to ceremony when i was 18 years old so the first part like chapters of my life i didn't know really what ceremony meant and what it and what that was and what the purpose was and what it meant in terms of guiding and containing rites of passage and so 
Um, Can you speak more to that? Like, what does it mean? What? Yeah, well, I think for me in my experiences, it's a, a way to express my conscious connection to great spirit and to land and to waters and to my ancestors who pray for, uh, you know, our well-being and our, you know, our work in this world, which is hopefully aligned with teachings that reflect humility and and compassion and respect and dignity and reciprocity. And ceremony is kind of that grounding moment that, you know, brings all of our energy back together collectively so that we can continue out to to live out teachings and, and walk in a good way. And, you know, there are moments in our lives where everyone needs to feel you know, those experiences and birth is really one of them. You know, it's what a powerful time for families. It's a time too, where I think I would imagine, you know, a couple really becomes a family in a way and it's transformative. And so we should be able to mark those transformations in ways that also do feel sacred and do feel um, like a rite of passage, not just something that is kind of like a check on the box and, you know, you know, this is how you breastfeed and then shuffle off home. It's like there's a lot of emotional and spiritual um, repercussions that I think uh, can be lovingly contained with community and with, you know, those who are also supporting. And that's really what I hope to offer in being a doula as well. It's like, not, let's let's go beyond just, you know, the safety and effective and efficient you know, support at that time, but let's also talk about and unpack and and create meaning for what this means for you as a family. I was going to ask that very question about what you bring as a doula. I, I think you just answered that. The ceremonies, can you, what, what are the ceremonies? Some of the, you said you were introduced at 18. Can you talk a bit about what the ceremonies are? are these plant spirit ceremonies? I, I don't know. Walk me through it. Yeah. Um, so the ceremonies that I began to participate in were Sweat Lodge, Women's Sweat Lodge. Um, and that was actually when I was in my undergraduate degree. And, um, you know, there's there's so many stories that talk about why I wasn't raised with ceremony. So much to unpack there. But really, I was... Uh, so grateful to be able to um, meet folks from the so from Oneida, Chippewan the Thames and Muncie, Delaware, which were the surrounding nations, the communities that upon like I lived on on and around their traditional territories and it was through their teachings so Haudenosaunee and um, and Anishinaabe teachings that I entered into Sweat Lodge and and then since then, it's become a regular part of my life and a regular part of how I express my um, spirituality and my well-being and my governance as well. And um, But there are other c- ceremonies, you know, that belong to our communities and that, you know, Sundance and, and fasting ceremonies. And those aren't necessarily things that I can speak to outside of community context, um, but they're something that as much as I would prioritize... Um, any anything else in my life they are really the the main priority in terms of how I can understand who I am in this world and how I can understand responsibilities and accountabilities and you know keep me on the track of of what I should be doing there it's a place for me to also um you know check in with accountability with community as well and check in with myself I think that there's lots of um you know we're in a time where 
we can, you know, really perform what we do through social media. And there is kind of, you know, in the platforms of social media and the platforms of, of images out in the world, we're not necessarily required to also express, you know, how we belong to community and how we are accountable to community. And uh, I mean, ceremony will do that. Ceremony will teach, I think, uh, that humility, that cultural humility that we really need to say, hey, you know what, none of this is about me. Like, this isn't a course that I made. And like, it's, you know, Aaron's name on things. Absolutely not. Our knowledge is relational and it belongs to who we are related to. It belongs to each teacher in my life that has helped me understand who I am. As Nihyao Machif as a mixed Soto Cree Metis Filipino Celtic woman, like what does that mean? And it's uh, those those real questions are really what's uh, I can go into in ceremony and not necessarily just in terms of how I present myself in the world, but in terms of how I can take care and better, you know, create more spaces for more care in the world. And and when I talk about decolonization and indigenization, I am absolutely talking about dismantling structures that reproduce oppression and dismantling structures that reproduce colonial values and interrogating what are colonial values. But who I am individually and personally is someone who just really wants to take care of people and, you know, and love, love people. And, you know, birth work is a place where I can really enact who I am. Um, while also, I think, inevitably um, interrogating and critiquing the things that, sep- t- you know, separate us from one another as well. Mm-hmm. I've taken part in a number of ceremonies plant spirit mostly but also sweat lodge and so i have a vision of what that experience is like and having a chief or a medicine person leading that do you have someone in each of these ceremonies that you're speaking of is there someone in your community that is the leader of the ceremony yeah and is there a is there a single kind of intention or goal of each ceremony or is it more of a cultural coming together or healing yeah I, I really think that um it so I'm, I'm trying to be conscious and sensitive of what stories belong to me and what knowledge doesn't belong to me and what I'm allowed not allowed but what I'm you know welcome to share and what I'm not able to share because I'm I'm still a learner but you know, so I'll just relate it back to myself, and that's really all I can speak to is when I when I sweat, um, and I've gone to different sweats out here in these territories, and luckily have, um, you know, friends and good relations with folks, uh, in you know, in Sartlip and in surrounding nations, and so I have their guidance in terms of like what sweats, we, you know, I can go to and things like that. Um, I definitely will go with some type of personal intention and and personal, you know, what is it that I need help with? But sometimes those ceremonies, um, you know, we're required to collectively take care of someone who may be there with, you know, with something else, whether it's grief or loss or, or addiction or, you know, whatever it may be, we're called to be there in a collective body as opposed to a personal body. But regardless, I think it is an opportunity for us to individually come together and, and kind of be together, um, outside of ourselves and and in very real and shared connection with one another and to land and spirit 
I mean, it's pretty, I can't think of really other times that we really have those opportunities. I don't know in my day-to-day life if I ever um, feel, you know, overwhelmingly connected to other humans and land and spirit. And so ceremony is that opportunity for us to do that. And, um, and uh, yeah, I have specific cultural teachings that I've been given to, you know, I'm not necessarily um, allowed to go to sweat lodges that aren't facilitated or aren't poured by uh, non-Indigenous people, but those are just teachings that are specific to to what I have, you know, that, that I have learned. So um, it's been, I haven't gone to a sweat at least since post or uh, pre-COVID, so I'm definitely getting excited to, I'll be heading up to uh, Sundance in two weeks, and then I have fasting, um, fasting in uh, at the beginning of August. So I really, I'm more excited for those, yeah. I really appreciate your intentionality in the language and, and not sharing what isn't yours to share. If I'm asking anything that, that you can't, just, of course, feel free not to answer. Yeah. I'm just, I'm fascinated yeah. by this because I know that for me to partake in any sort of ceremony, I really have to seek them out and and make such a strong effort and it becomes a maybe once a year sort of event and yet extremely powerful and extremely needed. If I'm hearing you correctly, it seems like these ceremonies are more available more often to the First Nations communities. And it's, it's, um, it just seems like such a sacred opportunity and space that I feel like it needs to be preserved and cherished because the rest of us, we could use that. Mm-hmm. sort of unity and mm-hmm. that healing and that yeah. collective energy. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I learned as well is, you know, ceremonies aren't necessarily something that are, you know, traditionally divorced from everyday social relational life. You know, they were very much integrated in just everyday community and family life. And so now we're at a place where we've experienced the ravages of, of colonialism and in, in communities that, you know, there are these things that are kind of set apart, you know, like I used to sweat every Friday for a, a year and a half. And that was like a part of my kind of everyday life. And, um, coming out here to these territories, it took me a while to find, uh, lodges to go to and, um, definitely is more, is a little bit, it's not as frequent. So it's not, it feels, you know, bigger and like, Oh, thank goodness I get to go to a sweat. And, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I look at I, I one of my dreams is just to be able to create a space like this where people can come together and can um, learn from, you know, indigenous leaders and, and knowledge carriers and people who carry medicine knowledge and ceremonial knowledge and and have these conversations together, you know, and um, and have ceremony together. There's a lot of indigenous people who, you know, I said I was 18, you know, they're and so it's hard, you know, the first sweat I go to or, you know learning as a as an adult learner you know you want to also protect spaces and allow for indigenous folks to reconnect to our ceremonies too and and um and you know i'd like to be able to support the creation of of spaces for that as well i would like to see that so feel free to use so your backyard i'm looking right here (laughs) that would be great (laughs) please invite me but otherwise yes feel free to (laughs) That's awesome. <laughs> so I've already scoped it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you 
Just be aware that goats can eat a lot of things. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> be careful of the building materials. Oh, they're such tricksters, those goats. They are. <laughs> I'm surprised they haven't ruined the podcast yet with the doors wide open to the goat field. I mean, the first birth I ever attended was when I was like six years old and it was a goat at my grandpa's farm. Star oh, nice. is yes. what I named her. I, really? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, she didn't make it through the night, but I was able to oh. hold her in her transition. Yeah. 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 I've midwife quite a few goats. I can just imagine. Eh? Last, last month, four of them, but wow. one of them definitely needed help. So it's. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. To... Cool cloth on the head. Oh, my head or there? <laughs> <laughs> that not that amazing, though? It is, I, yeah. Like, as a midwife, I can't, you know, yeah. I wow to midwives, but. And, and and nurses and doctors who do really good work but it's amazing how in some ways you we labor together yeah i've been personally so amazed that the and i can only speak of my own experience but the level of calmness that i have in those moments where i need to step in and help yeah and it's been two or three goats now who i've had to physically help pull out and there's no it's almost like i'm being guided i'll stand back i'll watch Mm -hmm. i'll observe and then at some point i just feel a tug of okay it's time oh my gosh step in yeah do what you need to do as gently as possible and it's incredible so i I can't even imagine helping out well i did i helped out with with my children's birth but it's yeah well honestly you just said it i think um you know when i talk to friends or family about you know being able to witness birth um you know and they say well how does it feel and i and i tell them i say you know it's the only place in my whole life where i just feel completely calm and completely peaceful and i guess confident i don't know if that's the word but i definitely like in the in academia and in you know different spaces continue to grapple with imposter syndrome and you know self-consciousness or insecurities like those things come up in society because things are you know it it, it can feel difficult to grapple self-worth but also with the work that we do and especially as a woman and so there's all these different layers climbing's another place where you're just constantly checking in and feeling you know going through insecurities and all this stuff but it's the one place where I just have that real sense of alignment and calmness and confidence and it's a beautiful feeling it really is yeah it is so next time some goats are born i'll come out and i'll uh we can pop some champagne after and celebrate (laughs) (laughs) well it's normally three in the morning when it happens of course it's birth (laughs) although the last the last batch uh, or the last two were born in the evening interrupted oh. our dinner but it was much better than interrupting our sleep right right and uh, i hear that <laughs> that was an amazing experience oh wow i want to shift gears a little bit i'm still not getting to academia or to the course that you <laughs> the course that's that all right offered. i'm kind of like a sh- <sighs> we're almost there i think though. yeah okay i want to hear about brazil i want to hear yeah. about how that experience in your youth informed the work that you do Oh, uh, everything. (laughs) Um, I think even in terms of identity, work, activism, responsibility, all these things were really rooted um, in 
my first experience to travel to southern territories and I had never really been out of my bubble of you know what I had understood to be like life and my in my world and um and then when I was 17 I had uh I had applied to and have been accepted to do an international youth uh, rotary exchange and in this exchange you kind of put like countries that you would be interested to go to and and they actually choose for you and so I I had played uh competitive soccer for a really long time and I had all my like soccer friends being like go to Brazil like the soccer and I and I go meet Pele go meet Pele but I didn't (laughs) even really know like my world was so small I didn't even know what Brazil meant and what Brazil was and um and actually there's kind of a funny story where they had a huge conference for all uh, international students who were in kind of our region in Ontario and um, and also in parts of the states and then all of the students who were who would be going on their exchange in the following year and at this point I had just learned that I was going to Brazil and there was this there was like hundreds of people at this conference and we were there with our parents and learning about what like what's an exchange what's cultural what is this you know and um kind of preparing us for culture shock and you know whatever and um at this conference they were kind of saying you know and we want to welcome all of the suit all of the inbound students from germany and they were all like yeah clap and we want to welcome all the inbound students from japan and like yeah clap and then they said we want to welcome all the inbound students from brazil and then all of a sudden there was eruption and shirts were off and people were like (laughs) swinging them in the air and they were like just like a huge explosion (laughs) and I looked at my parents and I was like whoa and they were like oh my god we're sending our 17 year old daughter (laughs) and um yeah I remember you know I don't even really remember how it happened but next thing I know I was on a plane and I was landing in this place and I was so scared and I was so sad to say goodbye to my family. It was like everything that felt comfortable was just taken away in my life, like everything. And it was the best experience I could have ever asked for because it was this chance in my life where it wasn't, I was away from family. I was away from culture. I was away from anything that told me who I am and I had to figure out who I was on my own in a place where everything felt different. So throughout my year of being in Brazil, I learned a lot and I was exposed to a lot. And it was probably the place where I started to question more consciously. Again, I was 17 as well. So I was like fresh out of high school and never had any type of social justice class or like indigenous studies class, nothing like that ever. And so... It was really through being there where I began to ask questions about social inequity and, um, you know, wanting to understand the root causes of poverty and um, just really wanting to inquire about what creates injustice in the world and, and how am I accountable? Where do I fit into that? And so that was really the, I think it, I always say like it opened the door to the rest of my life because after being there, I applied to an undergraduate program called social justice and peace studies, where it was a place where I was really able to, um, continue to ask these questions in a supported way. And in my, um, 
experience with that program I had also the opportunity to live in uh, Guatemala and, and Nicaragua and learn from other you know community ways to engage with things like climate climate justice or um, education and things like that and um, in my four years I my kind of like thesis work or whatever was indigenous leadership to climate change and climate action and um being able to live and work with community, but also, uh, you know, really take an international indigenous approach. When we think about international relations, often folks will think about, you know, within a colonial context, so Canada and Sweden and, you know, China and the US, but, you know, for, for indigenous nations, like we interact internationally all the time. And so what does governance look like from an international culturally cultural exchange and things like that. And it was really a really helpful way for me to learn more, you know, language of how to talk about these things and, and how to continue learning about these things so that we can ideally create more spaces for Indigenous leadership and Indigenous knowledge systems uh, across all spheres of society, because that was just the one thing that I really wanted to to be a continued helper with is to help create more space for uh indigenous place-based knowledge systems and and teachings and societal economic political um gendered you know teachings to influence the way that you know all societies work because what we're missing i think at larger levels of of political, economic, and um, societal function is that real conscious and meaningful connection to land and to waters and everything around that. And so, you know, I'm really just wanting to support the cultivation of Indigenous leaders. I want to support Indigenous leaders and and the knowledge that they carry and um, be a helper in any way that I can. So that so though so Brazil was really the place that I um, started to kind of I think find find my way my role in this. And then so I did my exchange in two thousand seven to two thousand eight, and then seven years later I went back. Uh, as a participant of the UN uh, Earth Summit, and I participated in the Indigenous self uh, uh, Summit for Self Determination, and I actually worked as a translator a little bit, but was just there as a participant and a witness, and was able to meet and engage with Indigenous people from all over the world, and um, that was kind of like this full circle moment where I began to see, you know, these questions are important, but I really want to locate them within um, Indigenous governance, and so. From that point on, I uh, actually I moved and lived in El Salvador for a year and uh, studied in, in human rights and education and and then started my program of indigenous governance here and moved right after that. And you had a fairly traumatic experience in Brazil, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Can you I, talk a bit? About yeah, that? absolutely. I mean. Uh, like when I talk about it, it kind of just feels like a movie playing in my head where I'm like, and then this happened. But uh, uh, tech, like, I guess the story is I was on a bus traveling and um, with some other youth and there was a, um, a, a armed robbery that was taking place on this back road and our car had pulled up and um, the guys who were, you know, trying to rob, it was a bank, like an armed 
armored bank vehicle that they were trying to rob they stopped the bus and they we had to all get off and we were held at gunpoint and um i saw people shot and it was you know we it was it's kind of a blur to be honest i twist i like twisted my sprained my ankle like you know the little things that i guess you remember but very chaotic and i when we got to our when everything kind of like uh they drove off and we were fine. Well, I guess the group that we were with were fine. And we had to call our parents that night. And I can remember like call and calling my parents and like, this is my parents, like worst nightmare too, you know, as they send their 17 year old to a different, you know, a far oh, away yeah. place. Any parents. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember calling my parents and just like hearing my dad's voice. It makes me emotional now, but just like hearing my dad's voice and just, um, I was like, dad. And he, uh, he could hear immediately, like we're a very close family. He could hear immediately, like something was off. And he called my mom and my sister and they got on the phone and I just told them what happened. And they were like, come home, like just come home. And and I said, no, I can't, you know, I, I can't leave. I can't leave. And I, you know, stayed another six months. But, you know, when I fell, I was laying in bed that night. I don't think anyone slept. But when I was laying in bed that night and my ankle was just throbbing and and I was just laying there and I was like, running through the violence that I had just witnessed and I thought you know what what were the reasons that made those people need to take such drastic measures to get that money do they have families to feed do they have little babies in their bed like what's the situation that put those people there and that was the first time I started asking those questions and wanted to learn more about the, you know, the violence behind the actions. Like what's the root of that though? Mm -hmm. Were you scared for your life yeah. at the time? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, it was the like first time again, coming out of my bubble where I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to live or die right now and there's nothing I can do mm -hmm. about it. And how did you heal from that? Um, or do you know if you even have? I don't know. I mean, my mom works as, as a child psychologist and she has like some friends and people who do art therapy. I'm, I'm, I express myself more so through art than, or, you know, like expression than anything else. And so she, she asked if I wanted to try art therapy, which I did and I just didn't like it and. I didn't like feeling forced, like I had to think about it. And um, for a while I had panic attacks uh, when I saw those armed cars or whatever. But I mean, it, it, I don't, I don't think I just ever thought about it anymore. It just feel, it feels like a movie in my head. So, and if, and when I think about it, I actually look back at that moment with sadness for the people who were hurt, you know, but also gratitude because it made me open my eyes to the world and violence is real you know and so um I think you know th there's a lot more trauma that I have family members who've experienced as well so I think it's just a part of it, it you know what though I think it really set the tone I really don't want to waste time um participating in like drama or um 
gossip or talking people down or or those types of things I there's just no time there really isn't any time so I think if anything it you know those moments where you're just kind of like it feels like the reins are taken off and you're like well what really matters I feel like it really set that tone to be like let's just focus on what matters and let's take care of each other and let's do the work that needs to be done and let's literally live each day with as much gratitude as we can because it is a gift and so and I, so when I do think about that, it does help me kind of put those things into perspective and just continue on with my, put my head down and continue to try to do caring work as best as I can. Mm, sounds like an incredibly formative experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for asking. You had all those experiences in Brazil. You decided that you wanted to go deeper into those and turn a career out make a career out of it oh is that what i'm doing is it a career i don't know i'm like yeah i a did it yeah. i'm a grown you're a doctor <laughs> i mean come on my 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 uh he's my great uncle but we call him like grandpa he was like so uh like what do you get what do you do with a phd I was like well uncle you know like they give you a piece of paper and you know, and like you can teach courses after you can help develop curriculum, you know, these types of things. And he just gets real quiet and he's like, <laughs> he's like, so you're going to be an Indian doctor. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's it. Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Do- <laughs> doctor. Yeah, <sure. laughs> Tell me I'm about- the least academic person <laughs> in that whole world. I think. Tell me about your experiences in university and hmm. The, the current work that you're doing? Yeah. Um, so I definitely don't identify as an academic. I identify as a learner. I love learning. I love, um, you know, imagining. I love creating more space for us to engage critically with the world, with each other, with the land. And um, so my experience in university is really extended from that, you know, Ever since being a young person, I've always really enjoyed learning in, in whatever way. And I, you know, I really like studying. I really like exams, those types of things. I really actually enjoy um, trying to just put my mind somewhere. And so um, I feel really grateful, you know, the first time that I experienced indigenous educators in a university setting was actually in my master's degree of indigenous governance and it was really beautiful because it was the first time I stepped into a learning environment with majority indigenous learners but also cultural kind of nuances and tones that you didn't need to validate or explain or unpack before even talking about the content it was just kind of a shared understanding and tone and so I really believe in the importance of you know indigenous educators and indigenous content and um and you know spaces for indigenous learners with indigenous learners as well so it was a really helpful time and place for me to start learning about and articulating you know these experiences that I had and you know past experiences with with knowledge in a more uh, effective way and so I just finished up in this year my PhD of indigenous governance and my uh, the title of my 
of my dissertation is land as body, indigenous women's leadership, wellness and embodied governance. And so what that work was really about was exploring and examining the interconnectivities between experiences of well-being and wellness and governance. So how we also express our relational accountability to one another and how those experiences are grounded in and or uh, return to relationship to, to land and to waters. And so just really looking at like how these things are connected and speaking to amazing, diverse indigenous women about, you know, what they, what it means to them. And from that experience, we, you know, wrote up, uh, the more formal paper or dissertation, which I really resisted because I really don't don't really like like writing about these things in academic terms. But we also translated them into a visual handbook that we have, which I should have brought to show you or give you, and um and also um like the short film. So I was thinking about you know when I go back to my to my grandpa, you know, and I say this is what I've been doing. I'm not gonna ask him or expect him to read a paper. So how can I show him and how can I engage with him about you know uncle this is what I've been doing and um and that's where I really see the power of um you know online uh learning opportunities like the courses here but also you know mixed media storytelling and film and as learning and so with something that we kind of call storied learning like learning through story and and letting story speak through through visual and oral narratives, which is way more reflective of Indigenous learning and research methodologies as well. So what are you doing now at the university with that work? I know you're just finishing it up. I am. (laughs) I just spent my past year working in a position uh, called the Indigenous Learning Specialist, which I don't like that title. I'm not a specialist in anything other than (laughs) sci-fi. Um, but my role, so I like to think of myself as a helper again, it's, it's really a worldview that I understand myself in. And, um, my role was really to oversee and create learning opportunities for faculty, staff, and students to engage with, um, decolonization and indigenization and the cultivation of safer, uh, relationships and experiences within the classroom. And so I was really advocating for, um, ongoing learning opportunities for faculty to engage with anti-oppressive, anti-racist, and you know, critical intersectional teaching practice. So, how can our teaching, um, you know, reflect indigenous learning methodologies, place-based protocols? So, locating our learning, it may, maybe that's through territorial acknowledgments, um, and but more so, just critical self-reflection. Who am I in this work? Who am I in this place? And how can that inform my responsibilities in terms of how I teach as well? So I actually, my last day of work is next Thursday. And then I have, um, for the first time since thir- being 13 years old, uh, two months of no work, <laughs> which is, nice. I, I panicked at first, but now I'm looking at it like a, like a, a gift, I guess. And yeah. so <laughs> I'm used to working seven jobs. Like I used to work wow. seven jobs through my undergrad and then like, in my master's, I worked seven jobs. I'm used to working like here. <laughs> is, contract. That, is that the magic number? Seven? Yes, it is. It is. Um, but I'm actually, I'm starting my postdoc in September and mm-hmm. my postdoc is going to be at the University of Victoria and it's an international indigenous um, approach to birth. 
and birth governance. And so um, my research is going to be based in Canada, Guatemala and Brazil. And I'm the goal is to develop a film which really highlights and centers in international indigenous approaches to birth hmm. as governance. So wow. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm probably going to have a baby in that time as well. <laughs> I mean, it's great timing. <laughs> Okay, so let's see seven. So you've got that work that you're going to be seven. doing. No, 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 not seven babies. You've got the filming. You've got your Indigenous Woman Climb. Uh, you've got your work with Pacific Rim College Online. Yeah. What am I missing? There's the... I do work currently with uh, Royal Roads mm. around developing curriculum for their Indigenization mm. uh, Pulling Together series. Um, Did I mention Doula? Was that in there? No, but no, we can do have lot. it. And, and then, then having a baby. Funny. Well, you know what? That we'll put that. Who oh, okay. knows? But the number seven. I do. I do do work with um, outdoor industry. So, okay. um, Arcteryx, North Face, uh, Rome Media is another one where we are looking at more opportunities to engage with this type of content in outdoor relations. Mm. What does that mean in terms of how we're responsible? Um, corporately or that's the first time I ever used the word corporate you know but like <laughs> professionally <laughs> professionally like how can representation and diversity not just be performative right like it's not enough just to include and have representation we need to also meaningfully create leadership opportunities because you know um I, w I was hired in, in the Indigenous specific position this year at the university, but it was within a context that was not reflective of Indigenous worldview cultures or, you know, knowledge systems. And so it was very difficult to, to do the work that we had to do because sometimes you felt really alone in it. So, I mean there we have to have more than just creating positions or inclusion or you know having people of color represented in photos you know so what's kind of like the more transformative things that we can do even in something like rock climbing mm -hmm. which i love <laughs> i wish we could even just talk about rock climbing i'm working on a project right now it's my first v7 boulder problem outside yeah. and i'm like I, I'm definitely feeling comfier after quarantine. So I'm putting this as a challenge for myself and it mm -hmm. would be my first V7 outdoors. And it's, it's been this really cool project. So I'm, I'm, yeah, really excited. And, and we're also starting up. So I run an indigenous youth climbing group here, um, in town and we're hoping to, you know, I'm going to take these next couple months to try to just focus on that and build that up for, for community as well. Wow. Just one more thing. Yeah, you can come on out. All right, come sounds climb. good. My, so we have, as you probably know, the climbing gym just right across the valley from us. Yeah, oh yeah, yep. And so my kids have grown up climbing and my wife and I go, we go three times a week probably. Oh, no way, at Stelly's? Yeah, at Stelly's. Oh, cool, okay. So it's such an amazing oh, that's awesome. gift to our community and I, my, I feel so yeah. blessed to have it in our family because right. it's just something we can all go and do together. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it really. I'll never forget my uh, sister-in-law when she had her baby. They came to visit us from Brazil when her daughter Luna was one, my niece. And I'll never forget she got up and she like crushed this V six, and then she sat down and breastfed. I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> like you don't see that, you know. It was just it's beautiful seeing how families can. Yeah, climbing is really a it's, it's a cool space for so many mm -hmm. things. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, let's not forget about your work at Pacific Rim College Online. But it's great. It has been a very winding kind of route. Yeah. Okay, back. To, it's called Indigenous Land Protocol and Medicinal Harvesting. What is this? What is this course yeah. about? And why is it important to you? Yeah, great question. Um, so I have learned so much from so many different knowledge keepers and indigenous scholars and thinkers and, and really, you know, leaders in, in their communities about indigenous research methodologies and how to engage with knowledge in a way that reflects place-based knowledge systems and protocols and relational accountability and critical self-location, all these different things that, you know, really, I think, creates for safer and for more effective research. And this has really provided the grounds for me to think about, well, if we take these principles and we apply them to something like climbing, for example, it really is also an effective way to start talking about transformative practice in that world. Okay, so what about in, in, in birth, being a birth doula, how can we apply these teachings and practices in this world? And then also, you know, I, I, um, you know, harvest in my own ways and in my own practices, but I know specifically here within the context of Victoria, that there are lots of people who are engaged with land-based practices of harvesting and medicines and things like that. And so, um, I was so interested to think about and in conversation with community and specifically like amazing community members out here at Sartlip who who do this and teach this work every single day in different capacities. I definitely see that there's, you know, an opportunity for us to think about, well, how can we locate our practice in a way that's also reflective of indigenous research methods? And again, those really are reflective of critical self-location. So who am I? you know, whose territories am I harvesting on? You know, what's, what's my intention with this practice and what is my relationship to, to land? Um, how does that inform my responsibilities? How does that inform my maybe accountabilities to local nations? And as I'm harvesting on their traditional territories, um, should I consider, you know, asking permission, like all these different kind of complex ideas. I think you know, it's it's helpful to be able to have space to even think about them before even engaging with them and having questions, uh, taking action or asking questions. Let's create a space for us to act, to think about these things. You know, many of us are products of the Canadian education system and many of us haven't had the opportunity to engage with Indigenous content or, you know, place-based knowledge systems to where we may have grown up. And that's not by fault. That's a very strategic and, and intentional practice of Canadian colonial governments, right? The exclusion, erasure, and attempted genocide of Indigenous peoples in Canada. And so now we're seeing, you know, the creation of more space and the cultivation of more opportunities for us to actually recenter Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous relationships, and um, really place-based protocols. And so I say place-based because, you know, we are currently on Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt nations. Well, right now we're on Wasanich, but um, so because we are here, how can we learn how to be here in a way that's reflective of local um, culture? You know, and and I caught myself not doing this, even thinking about this, because you know I've kind of situated. Well, I'm still in Canada or whatever. When I moved out here, 
And I had to really catch myself and say, whoa, whoa, like you're accountable to be here in a way that's also reflective of local culture. And, you know, have you asked permission to be here? All these different things that I would do when I'm traveling in another place like, um, you know, you know, Guatemala, when I was in Guatemala, you know, I made sure I knew whose territories I was on. I made sure that I did my best to learn Quechua and, and then Spanish. So, and like not request or ask people to speak to me in the, the language that I'm familiar with, like English. And so I had to do the work to be there in a way that reflected their cultural customs, norms, and protocols. Why would I not do that here? And so if anything, my goal and and purpose with how I engage with education is really that to create spaces for people to engage with this content in a way where they can feel supported to ask those questions and supported to maybe for the first time start thinking about these things. It's not necessarily our you know our faults that we for a lot of people haven't had the chance to think about these things, especially for people who may not know or have relationships with indigenous peoples. It's hard to know where to start. It's hard to know what my entry point is um, to thinking about anti-racism. You know, what does that mean? What does that look like for people who are mixed like myself or for, you know, white people or whatever? So I think, you know, at least for myself, things that I need what I'm learning are, you know, humility. And I think I, I mentioned this, I need a sense of vulnerability and I need a sense of, you know, humor. And so I hope to create spaces for people to feel comfortable and welcome to start asking those questions because those questions will take us pretty far. I think there's no answers, you know, especially in the work that I try to do and the spaces I try to create. It's never about providing answers. It's all about let's focus on the questions because questions take you further mm-hmm. if, if we feel like we have answers we're like okay my work's done check go back to living our lives but questions are really that's critical engagement and i think like critical thinking is the biggest gift that we can give ourselves mm-hmm. i have a lot of questions so i'll ask one great you maybe answered this in that but why to you and on a larger scale is it so important to learn whose lands you're harvesting from I mean, there's lots of different reasons, I think, why it's important to locate our practice. But one of the first ones is, you know, is to recenter Indigenous histories. I think that we're accountable to do that within the Canadian context because, you know, um, we assume or there's a very short imagination within Canadian consciousness that Canada always was and always will be. And, you know, Canada is this ancient entity that has always been here and this is called Victoria because it's called Victoria there's no other names to place and so that process is very violent because it's about the removal of indigenous peoples from their lands which inevitably removes indigenous peoples from their knowledge systems from ceremonial protocols from kinship ties to um food systems and medicinal systems and so there's an erasure that is uh, implicit to you know colonial expansion. And so if we can take the time to learn about where we are outside of the colonial context, then I think we are in many ways doing the work to challenge our imaginations in terms of how we understand space and how we understand where we are and to learn about the actual stories 
knowledge systems and people of the lands that we live on. And I think if we are going to be, you know, if I were to just, you know, set up my tent and make a you know sweat lodge in your backyard and then just <laughs> which, kind of which like you're going to do right? right which i will do but i'll do it in a good way where there's reciprocity and treaty and consent <laughs> <laughs> like all that stuff but you know if i were just to do that and then like eventually just start bringing all my people out here and then like expanding expanding and then kind of like you say you can live in this little corner here and then you know generations go by and maybe your family moves out or because you're pushed out or something like what there's a sense of um there's a deeply intergenerational sense of injustice to the story of this place as well and unless we can really un you know like reveal all of the truths to what define a place then we can't move forward like we so there's people talk about truth and reconciliation truth and reconciliation reconciliation this idea of making amends and returning to a state of friendly relations which is actually kind of the the um how it's defined in some ways and reconciliation isn't a it's not an indigenous uh you know framework for good relationship there we have lots of our own words and ways to talk about what it means to be in a consent-based reciprocal um ongoing relationship and truth is something i'm more interested in because it requires the careful time and energy for us societally and and collectively to pick apart those pieces that we don't know about our histories that we may not know about what brought us here today so that we can better understand our location so that we can move forward in a way that i believe can move beyond the constructs values and practices of colonialism and um the moment that we can do that is the moment that i think we can think about trans transformation and transforming together um so i don't even remember the first question but uh (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure you answered it i was just was it yesterday two days ago i was driving with with my kids and my son was asking a question about first nations and i think we were driving near Sarlip First Nations and and I was trying to explain to him that concept of as you explained if I come onto your lands and I have an agreement with you but over time I continue to push you further and further away until you're eventually gone mm-hmm. and it is such a I think it's so difficult for so many people today to understand that the magnitude of it is so enormous mm-hmm. that to even begin to have empathy and to resonate with it it's almost incomparable because it's that hasn't been done to so many of us and yet it has been done yeah I mean you know I'm, I'm in a unique position where as a mixed person I have both white and indigenous family members and it's really equipped myself and my my sister as well who's deeply embedded in this work to um to learn how to engage in these conversations in different ways and to learn how to find my place in it, you know, in terms of making space as opposed to taking space and ideally doing work that my other family members don't have to do because they experience more visceral racism mm-hmm. on an everyday level than than I may. And so I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful to have different relations that guide me in the, in this work as well because it is complex and, uh, you know, it is... Um, it is very layered and, yeah. and messy as well. And within you, as you speak of that, it's almost 
pardon the term, but it's almost like a Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. You have the First <laughs> yeah. Nations and you have the Scottish. <laughs> you, have, you have the oppressors and the oppressed. Is this confusing for you? Is I mean, it... I'm not the only one. We're, there are a <laughs> lot of mixed babies doing this work. No, that's so true, though. I think, I so I actually try to challenge that a little bit in terms of dichotomy of identity and ourselves and things like that. There's an amazing uh, article and I can send it to you, but it's called I'm Not a Pie. And it's this beautiful Cree woman. And she's like, she's you, she has ancestry that goes to uh, Ukrainian, German, Cree and whatever. And, you know, the, the division and kind of like categorization of identity is, is a very colonial construct because for, for our communities, we belong to who we have membership with, with our nations, who our kinship is, who we're accountable to. Like identity is very complex and, and relational. And um, with the imposition of the Indian Act, we've therefore been needing to create these dichotomies of how we define. And unfortunately, I think it creates these very messy places for people to find themselves in terms of how we belong to this work, which is really about, you know, learning how we belong to the land and therefore learning how we belong to one another. And so, um, you know, there's, there's lots of work out there that talks about how we can contemplate how to engage with this in a, in, in a good way. And one of the principles that I think I try to really emphasize within this course specifically is the practice of critical self-location. So who are we in this work? Where do we come from? Who do we belong to? All these different questions that help us position ourselves within society in terms of power and privilege and responsibility so that we can ideally be effective and efficient in in uh, the work that we're trying to do, which is, I believe, trans- transformational and really requires all of us. You know, there's room for all of us in this work. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the course, I'm going to ask a a multifaceted question. Why teach this now? What brought you to to bring this into the platform of Pacific Rim College Online? And what's kind of the, I know the essence of the course, you've mm-hmm. explained that, but what can people expect if they do sign up for the course? If people choose to engage with this course, they're going to engage with content and ideas that are based within Indigenous scholarship and literature and teachings around what it means to be conscious in place. And so again, um, that concept of critical self-location that we're going to talk about what that means and unpack that and hopefully provide some tools for people to have an ongoing critical self-location. It's not necessarily something that we do and that we have forever. It's it's actually a way of thinking and moving through space and moving through, you know, different territories and things like that. But it'll also provide a space for us to to think about, you know, what harvesting and what relationship to land means for different uh, Indigenous cultures and um, and hopefully provides a way for folks to think about and contemplate how am I therefore accountable to the well-being and to the nationhood of the of the territories that I live on, you know, as someone who is a visitor to these territories, you know, I try to contemplate how am I supporting local nationhood how am i supporting the well-being of future generations to these places and a lot of that has to do with how i care for and enact ethics of of care and protection to land and to waters and so um 
that's really the goal, I think, in the spirit of the course. And it really came about because I think about these things all the time. And I'm always, I love talking about these things. I love engaging with these things. I love education. I love creating learning opportunities um, and supporting them in any way. Like I, I literally like to say that I'm a learning doula like I'll be your learning doula (laughs) you know like let us let me create a space and then let's learn together type of thing um and so I think the the idea of the course really came out of my own relations and my own kind of uh inquiries and um really loving the values that were promoted by Pacific Rim and um you know never really being a part of the community but always being interested to learn a little bit more about it and 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 additionally, I love online learning and online teaching. I think it's a really great way for people to be able to seamlessly learn from where they're at in their homes, in their communities and, you know, in their families and whatever it may be. And so I think it's actually an opportunity to enhance, you know, learning um, in, in ways that feel more accessible for more people as well. So I, I love online learning and it's kind of a place that I want to eventually just be also because I'm kind of moving around between here and Brazil as well. So if I can continue to do, to do this work in a meaningful way, online format is a really great place. It's kind of like a, a new territory where we can all, you know, meet. Um, so yeah, so I think I just, I literally think I just reached out and introduced myself and said, you know, look, this is something I would, I would be interested in talking about. Is there anything in particular where you see I could, you know, apply these teaching practices or methods to the courses? And and that's where um, the response was, you know, we have this specific course, medicinal harvesting, that this could be a really good match. And so we kind of like co-created it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are you harvesting during the course? Are you showing some I think teaching actually harvesting? in the course, I harvest some cedar. Okay. But I don't harvest anything else in the course. I mean, I harvest in, in my life outside of the, mm-hmm. the course, but I think what's featured in the course is, you know, I said, you know, I could, I could definitely demonstrate, you know, how I would uh, harvest cedar. I don't harvest cedar in a way that's specific to uh, Wasanich cultures. They harvest it for very different ways and for very different uh, practices. So I'm doing it in a way that's reflective of my own culture. And um cedar being one of the four uh, sacred medicines of, of my people and that being sage, sweetgrass, cedar, and tobacco. Yeah, and so, um, you know, and what I have learned how to do is to ask permission to offer an exchange in which I offered a gratitude song and to put down tobacco as well and to, to try to demonstrate doing it in a conscious way. Everyone's going to have their own way to do that and everyone's going to have their own cultural teachings on how to do that. It's not necessarily like, here's how you do it. Now, now you know, pick this up and, and do it this way. It's just showing one individual person's uh, way to try to consci- be conscious um, in my relationship to, to land as teacher, not as other or object. What are some of your favorite plants to harvest and use? Oh, I think probably nettle hmm. right now. Nettle because I find, because I, I try, I'm like, what would happen if I harvest without doing my protocol? And I always get stung <laughs> and I all, I'm just like, like for days. Can I'm you just teach sting. me the protocol? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and then, and I learn, you know, I learn quickly and then the moment that I take time to introduce myself to the plant and um, in, 
you know, express my intention with how I'm going to use the medicine and ask for permission to receive the medicine and ask for consent, it's a very different experience. Nettle's such a great teacher too. Oh, (laughs) yeah. She's like an auntie. (laughs) She'll teach you. (laughs) Non-forgiving, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Who taught you to harvest? That's a really good question. I think many different people. I think, you know, I did, I never had a teacher or, you know, a grandparent say, come on, we're going to go harvest berries. We're going to go harvest, you know, do these traditional things. I didn't really have that growing up. If any indication of my culture wasn't necessarily like, this is your culture. This is important. You have to protect it. And, you know, you don't have to hide it. That wasn't something that became conscious until later on in my life. Um, where I was like, oh, like, whoa, I didn't, you know, you make those connections later on. But I would have to say the biggest teachers in my life at this moment are three three uh, people from Sartlet First Nation. No, you know what? Maybe five people. And I'm going to say, you know, people who are real leaders in these territories are um, Mary Hayes, um, Myrna Crossley, Bianca Elliott, Tiffany Joseph and Ashley Cooper, and they do really important work around um, learning what it means to harvest on Wasanich territories and learning, you know, what it means to be to enact a consent based relationship to Wasanich territories. And they do a lot of work in many different forums and formats. And um, they are definitely, I, I would say, just by witnessing how they raise their families and and you know participating in workshops when I can they are definitely people who I learn from every day and who you know I think keep me accountable as well Mm -hmm. now I was told to ask you one question oh great I don't know how to pronounce it but Tatawa (laughs) is it Jillian how how, how much did I butcher that (laughs) no not not at all so Tatawa is a word so um I am I've been learning my language uh, for about three years I would say and you know through classes at the friendship center through just being in ceremony but also trying my best to do it on my own and my baby Cree you know and so it's 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 hard to do it on my own um and but tatawa is a word that you know that means welcome essentially welcome like you're welcome here and um but it's way more than that, as many of our languages are. There's hidden meanings and in hidden meanings and deeper meanings and teachings in everything. Everything is very intentional. And so as I learned this word a few years ago, I've been thinking about it and I really recognize that it's an, it's an action-based word. So no, it's not just like welcome. You can say to someone, welcome. And they're not, that might, you know, they may not feel welcome. They might not feel feel like they belong in a space, even if they hear that word. But Tatoa really um, describes an action, which means you are welcome here. There's space for you here. And that really resonates to feelings of I belong here. And in the work that I do and in who I try to be in the world, I try to enact that notion of Tatoa. There's room for you here. You can be here. And um, at least when I have felt those those that that feeling or those teachings of tatawa is when i feel like i'm best able to learn i could listen to you say that word over and over again it's such a beautiful <laughs> word and such a beautiful meaning behind it yeah it really is yeah yeah 
Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. I'm going to, in, in the outro, I'll talk about where people can find your course. And I'll encourage, encourage people to look you up there. But where else can people reach out and connect with you yeah. or the work that you're doing? I think people can definitely find uh, find me at Indigenous Women Climb on Instagram. We're just building our website now and getting our sponsors all ready. So we're, hope, we're hoping to do a little bit of a, of a reel. Um, and then also my website, which is just sweetgrassandmangoes.com. Great. Or you can just come over and we could just hang have out. Have tea or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, Aaron, thank you. I'll probably you. be in your backyard, actually. You can, You'll you see can me do back that. there. Like, That's hey, fine. neighbor. <laughs> It's been such a pleasure and honor. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with the multi-talented Aaron Gilpin. Go to pacificrimcollege.online to sign up for Aaron's course, Indigenous Land Protocol and Medicinal Harvesting, and to take advantage of the 40% off launch sale You can also explore our various on-site programs in herbal medicine, holistic nutrition, and permaculture design. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn about all our education opportunities. Please share this podcast with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, find your place in nature, remember where you came from, and give thanks. Thanks.